We'll be in Exodus 8, 20 through 9, 12 tonight. Uh, let's pray again, and then we'll dive into the text. Uh, Lord, as we read uh, through the Exodus and we consider the next three plagues tonight, um, uh, I pray for understanding. There's so much symbolism. There's so much imagery. There's so much that you are speaking to that's been going on for years previous to this text. And there's so much that foreshadows things you'll do far beyond the text. Uh, Knowing that, uh, I'm intimidated by the text in a sense because we're going to miss something. And so um, rather than being troubled by that, I pray that it would sober our minds up so that we would be mindful that no matter how deep uh, we go, uh, the word goes deeper because it's breathed out by you. And so if we could completely wrap our minds around any part of you and who you are and what you've done, um, there would probably be a problem with that. And so I'm thankful that you're beyond uh, our understanding. And I'm thankful that one day we will be able to stand in your presence sinless and uh, enjoy you um, completely, eternally. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, climbing back in. What were the first three plagues? The water from the Nile, blood, what else? Frogs all up everywhere and gnats. Lovely. What did they represent? What, what were some things we learned about those plagues last week? Huh? Yeah, God's absolutely in control of the physical realm. Yeah, Pharaoh was not all-powerful. That's a very important point. What else? Other significance there? Yeah. Yeah, the magicians reached their limit. What, what were the magicians incapable of? The gnats? What else were they incapable of? Stopping the plagues, making the plagues go away, any relief whatsoever, okay? What were the magicians capable of? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll make more frogs and more blood. It's, it it wasn't, wasn't the best show of power. Uh, what was Pharaoh guilty of? Hardening his heart? It's another word for that. He was called out by Moses. You're being the opposite of obedience is fantastic. Okay. All right. As we dive into these plagues, remember that the first three interfered with the comfort of the Egyptians. The first three plagues specifically designed by God to interfere with their comfort. They had to dig for water. Uh, There were frogs everywhere. That's certainly uncomfortable. And the gnats are annoying like they are at any barbecue. Um, The third... The second three plagues, the Lord strikes the Egyptians' possessions. And in the third three, he brings desolation and death, ultimately uh, leading up to the 10th, the Passover. And also there's a pattern that I want us to be mindful of as we're looking at the plagues where there's two plagues that have a warning and then a third that does not have a warning. Then two plagues that have a warning and then the third does not have a warning. And why is that significant? I'll give you a hint. It is significant. Why? Why? 
What does it show us about God? He's patient to a point. Yeah, his judgment does not deserve warning. He's very merciful in giving any warning whatsoever, but his judgment is his judgment. It's very real, and it will come. And we'll talk more about that uh, later on in the study. So before we look specifically at this text in Exodus 8, I'd like to just briefly look at Psalm 78. So keep your finger in Exodus and turn over to Psalm 78. It gives us a little bit of insight into what we're doing as we study the Exodus, what we're hearing about, um, some other details within it. And in Psalm 78, you just start in verse 1. And now read this psalm with the Exodus in mind as we're climbing in. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So that's what we know. That's what we've heard. That's what we're supposed to tell. And then if, if you look over in verse um, 40, it gives us some insight into what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to be able to tell the coming generation, the little generation that just stepped out of this room and into their other rooms. We have a responsibility to that generation to tell them something. And part of it is, in verse 40, about our forefathers, the Israelites. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert, him being God. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his, mar- his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned the rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. That's what we're studying tonight in Exodus. The path of God's anger, the expression of his indignation and... Um, the plagues on Egypt. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. And look at verse 32. So loving, then God led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So turn back to Exodus 8. And as we do so, we're to listen closely to this Exodus story because it's our story Because God tells us and calls us in verse 4 of Psalm 78 to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he's done. So experience it. 
Climb into it. Import your senses like we did last week. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What would it be like if I was living during this time? What would it be like if I was in Goshen watching this happen? What would it be like if I was in the rest of Egypt looking at Goshen saying, what in the world? How's that happening? Which we'll study more in a minute. But climb into it. Remember it. And make sure y'all talk about it to your kids when you go home. Tell it to the coming generation. Exodus 8.20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. Say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. So to be clear, why does the Lord want his people released? So they can serve him. It's about worship. It's about worshiping the one true God. And what we can tell from here is that they have been in conditions as such where it has inhibited their worship. It has gotten in the way of the worship and their service to the Lord. And he's saying, let, me, let them go so that they may serve me. And the Pharaoh is very against that. Why would he be against that? Yeah, because they're serving him. And he likes that because he thinks he's God. He's a big, arrogant punk who's about to be shown up by the real God. That's what's happening here. So, uh, verse 21 through 23. Or else, if you will not let my people go warning, or else. Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Pretty nasty. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know. You who? Who's he talking about? You who? (laughs) Pharaoh. That you, Pharaoh, may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I'm not just some far distant God disconnected from my people. I'm right here running your land right now. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. Why are the Israelites in Goshen? God protected them there? Yeah. Way back when, a few hundred years ago, roughly, or not roughly, right at four... 30? Is it 418, 430, something like that? We'll look it up afterwards. Um, uh, the land of Goshen? They're, they're, they, uh, when, at the end of Genesis, when Joseph came over and he dealt with, he interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams. Uh, the Pharaoh said, I like your plant. And the dreams themselves said, you're going to have seven years of good and then seven years of famine, and it's going to be really hard. And he came up with a plan to deal with the problem. And Pharaoh said, I like that, Joseph. You're in charge now. And so Joseph rose to a point of power where he was, in fact, blessing the entire earth because of the way that he dealt very wisely and very shrewdly with his resources. He, he would have been a very good businessman, but a faithful one, a God-fearing and God-honoring one. And so what happened was his people came over, uh, thought they had sold him into slavery, turned out... Um, God had another plan, and, and they were put in the land of Goshen. It was given as sort of a gift to, to Jacob, his father. And so um, 
They're in Goshen because the Lord provided that land for them. Why else are they in Goshen? Yes, all shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Isn't that ironic? The Egyptians who are godless and hateful towards the Israelites think all shepherds are an abomination. Now, who's the good shepherd? Okay, you seeing what's happening there? They think all shepherds are an abomination, so that would make the good shepherd like the biggest abomination. This is utter godlessness. This is depravity. This is rampant sin. It's very, very corrosive. Now, they're in Goshen because it's a provision from the Lord, and also they are an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's this kind of twofold thing. Um, consider for a moment what God is telling Pharaoh and revealing to us here in coming to Pharaoh and making this distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. I mean, he makes the distinction and calls them, I will do this with my people, and this is what's going to happen to your people. He's making distinctions here. And consider what this would be like. God's showing favor to the completely unlikely. We've seen this before, and we'll continue to stress it. He's showing favor to the completely unlikely. Now, an example I was trying to think of what this would be like. I think it would be like going to a five-star restaurant and steakhouse. Anyone ever been to a five-star restaurant and steakhouse? Four? Three? Two? You've been to where they cook you food, right? Um, that, uh, consider like a, a, a Three Forks or Del Frisco's or something, something real nice where the chef is going to wear the nice white thing and cook a great uh, meal for you and it's going to have a nice presentation. Imagine going to that place and you ask uh, to see the chef. You get to this nice place, you ask to see the chef, and instead of finding him in the kitchen, tending to the choice foods so as to prepare delicious platters, you find him behind the restaurant digging in the trash. And you ask, what are you doing? And he says, this is where the goods are. This is what I use to carry out my will in the kitchen. Your response would be the same as the Egyptians. That's the trash. That doesn't even make sense. Perspective, like normal thinking, does not even lend itself to that being logical. And so for the Egyptian, that's how they would feel about God showing favor to the Israelites. That's the trash. Why are you wasting your time in Goshen? That's how the Egyptians would see God showing favor. The Egyptians viewed the land of Goshen and its inhabitants as the trash. So when God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt via Goshen, and then shows favor to those in the land of Goshen, he completely defies Egyptian logic and challenges the Egyptian norms. So he makes a distinction. My people, your people. Also consider, what are some other areas where God's children are shunned and despised for the very things that set them apart? They were an abomination. Go to Goshen. You can have it. Where are some areas where God's children are shunned and despised for the very things that set them apart, just like the Israelites. Sorry? In the time of Esther? You want to explain more? Anyone want to... Why were they, uh, why were they shunned and despised? 
Yeah. Anyone know the uncle's name? Yeah, we all have that VeggieTales episode. We all know that. <laughs> yeah, so they were shunned and despised for the very things that set them apart. They were Jews. They were God's people. What about today? Huh? Russians and the Germans? Yeah, there's a lot of conflicts. What about at work today for you as a believer? Yeah. 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 What are some things that make you distinct because of your faith? Praying. Yep. What are some other distinctions of your faith? What? Yeah, I love the church. How does the community that's not a part of the church oftentimes view the church? A waste of time? Stuffy? Bunch of sinners up in there. Killjoy? Yeah, absolutely. What else? Hypocrites? What else? Yep. Yep. What else? Digging deep. Yeah. Yeah. But why would you ever be shunned for doing what's right? Because yeah. right is right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you're getting in the way of whatever is their benefit, that'll absolutely <laughs> result in you being shunned and despised. I'm thinking of some other things like turn the other cheek. Like that just looks dumb. It just looks stupid. Like really, if someone punches me and I don't do anything about it, I'm like a sissy, right? Like oh, you back down from a challenge. Like that's something that could be easily despised and everywhere from a from a bunch of adults to a bunch of kids on a playground. Moderation, storing up treasure in heaven. Do not desire to be rich. 
submitting to your husband. I didn't write that on my list, but I agree with that. <laughs> and it was probably loud enough to be picked up on the recording. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about Corey. Nice. I've seen that happen within a family where one generation looks at the, where a grandma looks at a, her daughter and says, why are you helping out the grandkids so much? Or what, why would you do that? Why would you take them to dinner? What? That's ridiculous. That's over the top when that's even within the same family. It's just a matter of faithfulness and, and uh, motive. So with each of these things, we, we could discuss these all night. With each of these things, though you may be despised, there's both provision and shelter. Turn to Revelation 18.4. We're going to pick up the pace from this point forward. Revelation 18, verse 4. I've cited this a lot because it's words I'm eager to hear. Should I be around to hear them? 18, 4. This is the Lord. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So what we're getting at is that There are some things where you will be shunned and despised. They will likely be the very things that set you apart as a believer. And in Revelation 18, you hear, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. There's provision in God's guidance in that. And then there's safety for you. There's God guards you. He guides you in a way to keep you from sinning. There's a prayer in the Word that says, Keep me from hidden sins. There's, I believe, help my unbelief. He's very detailed. He tends to us like a good shepherd, like a wayward sheep goes about. He brings, him, he brings us back in. And so when you, hear, you see this, come out of for my people, don't be a part of the world, lest you take part in her sins, lest you take part in her plagues. Look at verse 24 in Exodus 8. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I had a fly in my kitchen today while I was preparing this. And, you know, when you turn into like a a ninja with a dish towel, trying to get the towel or trying to get the fly. Then I went to my bedroom, there was one. And I'm thinking, okay, this is annoying. And that happened today. And, uh, Consider the annoyance of one single house fly in your kitchen or in your bedroom or in your car. You ever had one in your car? Trying to get it out the window. You swerve like a maniac off the road trying to get the fly out of your car. Now climb into the story. These are not simply house flies. Psalm 78 refers to them as swarms of flies. If you look at the language a little deeper, it says all sorts of flies. And we know from Psalm 78 that 
they devoured things. These are devouring flies, which means they bite. Could be a horse fly or a mosquito or a combination. There's probably not the same type of one fly. It was probably many different swarms and types of flies that devour and bite and ruin. Okay. The houses were filled by these flies. Okay, last week we considered what it's like to a river of blood. You go home, and if you had a bowl of water, it's blood. All the streams leading in is blood. In order to drink, you have to dig beside the river to try to find some clean water. And then the magicians, in their brilliance, take it and turn it into more blood. And then you go home, and the blood's gone, but now there's frogs. I think the blood's gone. I'm I'm still up in the air on that. But then there's frogs all over the place, on you, on your kids, in your bed, You can't get away from the frogs. You can freak out, but then when you're done freaking out, the frogs are still there all over. Then gnats like dust. They take the dust, throw it up, and it's gnats all in your nose and everywhere. Disgusting. And now what we're seeing is flies. When you think about flies, what comes to mind? Filthy. They puke every time they land. <laughs> Say that again. They for a day. They're annoying when you're hunting. What else? Flies. Maggots. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, where do you usually see them? Around things that stink. Like what? My kitchen, evidently, I needed. To, I had one in there today. What else? Trash. Where else? Poo. Where else? Trash, poo, and what else? Dead animals, carcasses, dead carcasses. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything redeeming about flies that any of you have found? Thought long and hard today. Let's see if y'all had anything. Nope. Okay. Fantastic. We once had a really bad mosquito problem in our backyard, and uh, when we got really, when it got really bad and we got really annoyed, we would seek refuge in the house. Imagine how miserable it would be to have biting flies all over the place, and you seek refuge in your house, but they're all in the house, and you look down on the ground, and they're all on the ground. This is hard for us to imagine, because none of us have probably been in a situation like this. I saw something on the news about there were mice everywhere in these fields and you pick up something and there's a hundred mice on the bottom of it just just filthy and so these flies are everywhere <laughs> we had one run in the door today <laughs> Lori <laughs> welcome to cross point <laughs> Jeff got it Devoured, yeah. And it's just as far as you can see. Yeah. Um, but nothing's living for the foreseeable future. Yeah. How that wouldn't make you want to turn upward. Yeah. Yeah. 
It, it makes you hold loosely to the things of the earth because they've all been devoured and ruined and they, they're flammable and they're not fly resistant. Flies have always been associated with death, stench, ruin, and disease. Uh, Lord of the Flies, you know, written by Golder, Gold, Golger, something like that. Gold something. And uh, the point, they were a bunch of boys land on an island. It was, they were fleeing a wartime thing and they land on this island and um, they're all 13 and under and they try to have some form of government and it just kind of falls into disarray and there's supposedly a beast on the island and so they killed a pig and the beast was actually a parachuter that died and they put the pig's head on a stick and when they go back, this one kid thinks that the pig's head is talking to him and it's got flies everywhere and so we refer to it as the Lord of the Flies. There's a picture of evil there. There's a picture of lack of order. Who here has seen the Green Mile? Anyone seen the Green Mile? Okay. Um, this is not an encouragement or anything like that. It's just an example. Um, uh, who was the redemptive character or savior figure wrongly imprisoned? John Coffey. And what are his initials? J.C., Jesus Christ, Savior God. Okay. And in the movie... Evil came in the form of violent and murderous behavior, and evil even came in the form of sickness. Now, evil was depicted in the form of what? Flies. Okay. Remember uh, when every time he took evil from someone, he took their sickness away, or he tried to heal someone, he'd open his mouth and the flies would come up, right? Okay. This is not an original thought. Um, most of the best movie plots are completely unoriginal and largely stolen from the word. A savior with the initials JC must be wrongly imprisoned and ultimately gives his life for others to be rescued from evil, which comes in the form of flies. Flies have always represented evil, and we're seeing it here in Exodus as well. Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebul means something different. Have you ever thought about Beelzebul, Beelzebub? There's a difference. Um, Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. In Egyptian culture, it was believed that if the flies had come up on the land, then the God who had dominion over the flies must somehow not be pleased. That was the belief in the culture. And if y'all go read stuff about all this, you're going to find a whole lot more. So this is not, I'm not giving you an exhaustive thing on what happened with the plagues and, and the gods that they were against and everything. I'm giving you a brief snippet. There's way more you could study. You could spend your lifetime studying it. But it, it was believed that somehow that God uh, was not pleased. And often sacrifices were made to these gods in the form of animals and even sometimes their own children. And then if flies ever receded and, and left the land, then the belief was that the gods were now pleased. With that said, what is God accomplishing by overwhelming them with flies? That he's the Lord. No one else. Yeah. Yeah, where's your God of the flies? I chumped him, and he's busy right now picking flies out of his teeth. That's what happens. Now, verse 25, 8.25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. So what did Pharaoh just tell him to do? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Generally, when we 
give some sacrifices to our fly God, there's relief. So y'all go worship your God so we can have some belief. But do it where? Within the land. Now, knowing that Pharaoh has been guilty of disobedience, is he now showing at least partial obedience? Okay, everyone says no. Why? Okay, selfish. Okay, but he's going to let him worship, which was part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah, partial obedience is still disobedience. If you tell your kid to do something and they do part of that thing, it's not like, it's not disobedience. That's what it is. They're not doing what God said. God said, do this, this, and they did like part of it. Or Pharaoh said, I'll, I'll go for a bit of it. And uh, it's, it's disobedience. Look at verses 26 through 27. But Moses said it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. Remember, we're in Goshen. If we sacrifice offerings abominable, abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Moses explains the reality of the situation, and he follows it up by saying that their sacrifice to the Lord must not be as Pharaoh says, but as the Lord says, as God tells us. That's how we need to function. We're not going to do a form of it. We're not going to do Pharaoh's preference of it. We're not going to do a hybrid of what Pharaoh wants and what God wants. We're going to do what God wants and how God says, and no other way are we going to do it. He wants to make this point to Pharaoh so that it's clear to everybody. Verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. He's not sounding like such a God, is he? Or king or anyone of power. Plead for me. I'm tired of these flies. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Every single fly was removed. Can you imagine the relief? You ever had like a huge mess and someone just cleaned it up for you? Like, oh, thanks. That was nice. There was one, like the first year I was here, we had a lame little swing set out here and I went and got red stain. Not paint, but stain. It's meant to, to not come off of anything once it goes on. And, uh, and we had checked it all and someone had set the lid back on it, but not put the lid on it. They set it on it. They didn't use a mallet to, to, to shut it. So I got a gallon of red stain. Again, stain's meant to not come off. And so we were going to do this thing out here, and I came in here, and I'm standing in this entryway in 2004, and I pick it up, and I go to shake it, and I do this, and it's everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. It looked like a murder scene because it's red stain. Two minutes later, my new boss, Mr. Ben McGraw, walks in and just goes, what? 
And then he just went into his office. He didn't say anything else. It's just like, whoa. And just went into his office. And uh, it was uh, uh, Lawson Flowers was helping me that day. And so we were, <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, this is a total mess up on the walls, blood splatter everywhere. And, uh, and um, so I was like, well, I guess we better start cleaning it up. It just seemed like the most futile effort because it's everywhere. And I know it's designed to stain. I was like, if we don't let it dry, it won't stain. So we get the hose in here. You have no idea four hours later. And it looks like it does right now. Clean, 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 clean. Ben came out and was like, in the middle of it, he came out and was like trying to do some pastoral metaphor on the blood. And, uh, and he comes out and we're scrub, 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 scrubbing. More, uh, me and Lawson are on our hands and knees scrubbing, getting it cleaned up. He's like, man, it's looking better. He's like, man, just think about your sin and think about redemption and think about all these things. And, uh, and Lawson didn't even miss a beat. He goes, yeah, you be Jesus. And just kept scrubbing. It was pretty funny. Um, but then he came back a few hours later. It was done. It was like this huge mess, but then all of a sudden it's cleaned up. You can't even hardly tell that anything was there. Not one fly was left. Every single fly was removed. And again, what did Pharaoh do? He cheated, he disobeyed, and hardened his heart and did not keep his word. That's what godless people do. If you're acting in a godless way, you will cheat people, you will disobey, you will harden your heart, and you won't keep your word. Pharaoh's really had an abundant uh, opportunity, many opportunities to repent, And this shows us that repentance is not just a behavioral issue. It's a worship issue. Pharaoh did not turn from his disobedience because of the hardness of his heart. It wasn't just, I'll change my mind and change the actions. It was because of the hardness of his heart that he would not turn from his disobedience. Turn to Proverbs 21. I want us to make sure as I read this, I really want us to understand that the Pharaoh did not pull one over on God and Moses. Like, if you get rid of the flies, I'll let you go worship. Now the flies are gone, never mind, ha ha, gotcha. That's not what happened here with Pharaoh. He didn't pull one over on God and Moses. These verses give us insight into the great complexities of the situation regarding the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. We've talked about it before, and it's very complex, and it's very... um, Hard to wrap your mind around. You got to talk about it a lot and work through it and look at different scriptures. The scripture we're going to look at tonight is Proverbs 21, verse 1 through 2, and it says this O Lord, O Lord, I'm in Psalm 21. And Proverbs says, The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man's of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So, what is God doing with the heart there? What's if you take the heart? What's being done to it by God? What do we have? He's hardened Pharaoh's heart, and the heart is like what in his hands? Like a stream of water, what does that mean? Yeah, if God says go this way, it's going to go this way. Just like every river you've ever seen, God said go that way. That's why it goes that way. Or he had someone build it to go that way. He's very sovereign. And this is what's going on here. The 
the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's turned the king's heart where he wants to turn it. But what else does he do right after that? He weighs the heart. Why would he do that? Didn't he already turn it where he wanted it? What's he, gonna, what's he expect to find when he weighs the heart? You expect to find that Pharaoh is actually great? No. This is very, very complex. Pharaoh is right in his own eyes. Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let y'all go because in his own eyes, that's what he thought was best. But because he is not the highest of all kings and he is being judged by the king of kings, the Lord is weighing Pharaoh's heart, which like water in his hand, he, the Lord, has hardened. So he's weighing the heart that he has hardened. This should cause greater dependence for us sitting here, those who are God's children, those who love the Lord, those who fear the Lord, this should cause us to depend upon God for the work of our salvation. Verses like this cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because if God has not given us eyes to see the truth for truth, we'll be right in our own eyes, yet ultimately wrong by God's standard. This should cause us to go to God all of the time, not just when you think you're in a pinch. Not just when you think you're in a pickle. Not just when you're in a situation that's a little bit more complex than the others. Not when you're just a little confused. That's not the only time you go to God is when you think, oh, I can't, I can't handle this one on my own, so now I'll go to God. You go to God all the time. We can screw up the most simple things and think that we're completely right and justified. You ever done that? Like, how did, why did I say that? Why did I think that was right? I look back on decisions I've made in the past and I'm like, Really? I thought that was good. I thought that was the right thing to do. And now looking back, I'm thinking, wow, what mercy and grace God has shown me and reached down real low to drag me out of my sin. It makes us more dependent upon him, not less. It makes us thankful for the love with which we're loved, which is lacking in nothing. Our hearts, too, are like water in the hand of God. Look at these next two plagues very briefly. Exodus 9. They're increasing in severity, but shortening in length in the next two. Their text length, anyway. Increasing in severity, 9 verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Here we go with the distinction again. So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let them go. What are livestock good for? Food? What else? Huh? Milk? What else? Huh? Income. Absolutely. Okay. That's a handful of things. We find at the end of this plague that at the very least, Pharaoh is curious and sends out 
people to see if, in fact, the Israelite livestock survived. Because what did Pharaoh observe in the rest of Egypt? Dead livestock. Like he knew, okay, God said he was going to kill all my livestock, but I want to know if Israel's livestock is really still alive. So he sends, um, sends some over and says, in fact, finds out uh, they, none of the Israelite livestock are dead, and uh, his heart was hardened. Remember, this, in the first three plagues, God strikes the Egyptians' comfort. Now he's striking their belongings. To have all of your livestock in the field killed is a major blow. The only ones left were those in the stalls and maybe those not included in the list because we see more livestock being uh, destroyed in the future plagues. There weren't any insurance companies ready to reimburse them. I called Brad today. I was like, hey, can you insure livestock today? And he said, yes. Or if someone has like a show horse, something that's worth like five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, you can insure that. They didn't have an insurance company insuring their flocks. When they're gone, they're gone. It is a loss. Count it. This would have had an impact on the economy of the Egyptian culture, which should remind us of our dependence on God um, for even uh, economical conditions. Dependence is a form of trust. Dependence says, I need you no matter what, and I trust you no matter what. That's very different from saying, if things are good, I'll trust you, and if things are bad, you stink. That's very different. Dependence is a form of trust. Look at verses 8 through 12. Third plague. Sixth plague. Sorry. Third one night, sixth one overall. Boils. Gross. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. They shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses and threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and fell upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Like the third plague, the sixth plague comes, out, comes without warning. Further reiterating that our God, though long-suffering, will have a point, a point where he brings forth judgment. Have you ever had a bad blister on your foot? Okay, why was it bad? Let's get real gross for a minute. Why was it bad? Festering and oozing, those are great words. It hurts. When does it hurt? All this thinking time, when I walk, when I don't move it, when I do move it, what makes it worse? Any movement. It's annoying. Now, imagine boils all over. This would be considered real suffering. Turn to Isaiah 1, 5 through 6. This is a description of the unregenerate, not repenting Israel later on in the story. Isaiah 1, verses 5 through 6. Think about these boils covering animals, people from head to toe, sores breaking out, festering and oozing, disgusting, painful, annoying. Totally interrupting your day, 
totally getting in the way of normal activity. Verses 5 through 6 in Isaiah 1. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. This is a description of unregenerate Israel. So the boils represent the condition of men who refuse to acknowledge and submit to the one true God. From head to toe, they're corrupt. It's a very simplified way of saying a lot that's being said in Exodus. Again, if you go study this, there's a lot more to study. But at the very least, this represents the condition of those who do not refuse, who refuse to submit to the Lord. They are corrupt from the head to the toe, like being covered in boils. And consider the imagery of the magicians unable to even stand. It shows such corruption. If this is a picture of you being corrupt because of your godlessness, the magicians who couldn't even stand before God, it shows their condition in their godlessness as being completely bankrupt and corrupt. Our problem today is not with the oppression of slavery from Egypt, and our judgment is not in the form of plagues. Our problem is with sin, and our judgment is in Christ. Sin is oppressive, and it leaves you miserable. God will judge his people. And those found in Christ are like those in Goshen, spared, redeemed, and blessed. And not just protected from evil, but protected from God's wrath. For those outside of Christ in the rest of Egypt, dead livestock, boils, flies, gnats, blood, frogs, There's eternal destruction and eternal death for those outside of Christ. It will one day be as real for the world that we live in as it was for the Egyptians and the Israelites during the plagues. That's how real it's going to be. When they saw all of these plagues taking place, they experienced them. They smelled it. They they saw the filth. They saw the depravity. They saw the destruction. It will one day be as real for this world that we live in right now as it was for the Egyptians and the Israelites during the time of the plagues. Those outside of Christ will tremble and suffer in horror, while those in Christ feel the sweet relief of sinlessness, the sweet relief of redemption, restoration, and a righteousness that is counted as ours that is found only in Christ. That's what's being represented in this story. I'm going to close in prayer, and just I'd ask you to close your eyes uh, as I read Romans 2, 5 through 8. And then we'll pray. Romans 2, 5 through 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Lord, as we hear your warning in Scripture, I pray that we would heed your warning. I pray that we would not obey unrighteousness. I pray that we would not be like Pharaoh, who was self-serving and went back on his word and did only what was right in his own eyes. 
Lord, as we see these plagues and we see this display of your power, I pray that we would be mindful of the fact that you are among us. You are very informed. In, you're not informed. You're above being informed. You don't need to be informed. And you're completely in charge and sovereign over all these things that are happening on the earth. You're not some far distant, disconnected, and aloof God. I pray that we would take comfort in that. I pray that we would see you tending to your flock in Goshen during horrible plagues that you caused. And I pray that we would see our sin and see our need for a savior and see how we are being saved from your wrath. The Israelites in Goshen were being saved from your wrath, poured out on Egypt because you put them safely in Goshen and you made a distinction. Lord, we will only be saved from the wrath that is to come that's talked about in 1 Peter, that's explained more in Revelation. When you come in fire, as you say you will in the word, only those found in Christ will have an inheritance, will be heirs, will have this eternal dwelling with our God. Lord, there's nothing worse than eternal separation from you, and I pray that you would help us to understand that more. We're completely dependent upon you. Lord, I pray that we would ask in light of this and in light of Sunday's sermon, are there any forms of godliness in our life that are fake? I pray that as we sit here, we would be honest with ourselves and and repent of those areas where we're just trying to look the part but denying the true power of godliness. That's what Pharaoh was doing. He would try to look the part at times, but he would ultimately deny its power. Lord, help us to be honest. Help us to not leave here and just see a bunch of wicked people who deserve what they got and not see our own depravity, not see our own need for a savior, our own need for shelter, our need for redemption. God, you are great. You're greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. And every piece of scripture that we get to look at, we're reminded of that. We are desperately needy. Please give us a continual awareness of your presence. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.